You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Okay, so I just thought it would be a good chance, this is a new year, to just remind ourselves of who we are and what we're up to in the class. The purpose of this class is really to train us in the basics of the faith so that we can have those strategic and supernatural conversations with our 8 to 15. Because the DNA of our church is this whole oikos mentality of the 8 to 15. But we don't often have a lot of training on, well, I got all these people and they have all these messy lives and what am I supposed to do with them? And so how do I bring scripture to bear? How do I speak into their life uh, the the vision and, and the hopes and dreams that God has for them? So that's really what our class is about. And sometimes we we touch on um, topics that are in our broader culture. Sometimes we talk about things that um, are controversial, but we don't do it because it's a debate class. We do it because we're trying to figure out how to be better evangelists. And that's really what we're trying to figure out is our identity as ambassadors of the gospel. So I just kind of wanted to take a moment to just remind us of how, how did we arrive here and, and what are we trying to, to do in this class. So we've been having a series of discussions in class. Is We've been talking about Christian values in changing times. So last time, a month ago, uh, we had kind of a, a part one on questions related to pro-life issues, and we really focused... That, that time I kind of switched it. Normally, I do all the theology and the Bible stuff up front, and then we kind of reflect on the personal application and the ministry application for our oikos. This time I sort of reversed that, and I put a lot of the application stuff in the first lesson, and uh, we're going to do more of the Bible part of it today. I just reversed it because it, I wanted to... I was really nervous about coming in and having all the, the theology and the, the philosophy up front and turning it into this really sterile issue when it's such a deeply personal issue for so many people. And I didn't want to give the impression that this is merely just a, a, a logic problem or a theology problem. I wanted to, to really kind of do the personal part of it first, especially because I knew we weren't going to meet for a few weeks. And I didn't want to leave you just with that. So that's why I did it this way. And last time we said, what does it mean to be pro-life? And what I'm suggesting as a basic definition here is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, as we've been talking about all fall, that all humans are created in the image of God, based on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And that this includes even the unborn, and that that they are entitled to the same legal protections as any other human being, and that human rights begin in the womb, including women's rights begin in the womb, and that this has been historically the classical Christian framework for understanding these issues. And what I really tried to emphasize last time is the pro-life conversation is a contemporary way of talking about something that has been in the church the whole time. We didn't start pro-life concerns in 1970s, okay, with Roe v. Wade. This has been a long historic tradition within the Christian church. And we saw that rather disturbing clip about the the church in Ephesus and how they would rescue infants from the trash heap. This is a long part of our history as Christians that we value life and that we value Um, children and even young children and even the unborn. So this is part of our DNA, if you will, as Christians. I've tried to stress this whole series of trying to get beyond political alignments into something that is more distinctly Christian. And we have a tendency as pro-life, quote-unquote, pro-life conservative advocates, maybe I would have been better phrased that way, tend to focus more on the rights of the unborn. Whereas if you talk to your liberal friends, they're more concerned about the rights of the woman. And I think that our goal as Christians ought to be to help both the unborn and the woman. 
And this is where I'm asking us or inviting us to get beyond our politics of conservative and liberal and think about this in a distinctly Christian way. If we remember the clip that we watched with my friend Mary Ann talking about her journey as a young teenage mother and how it was really her mother who was the one that she felt like that could have made a difference coming alongside her mother may have made a difference for Mary Ann and her son. And so we need to think about this in a more holistic way and kind of move beyond our politics into to the distinctly Christian idea that life is valuable. The mother's life, maybe even the grandmother's life, the unborn, and how do we help this person and come alongside them in this season. So I want to look at one passage in particular because you might be wondering, does the Bible have anything to say about abortion? And if you talk to someone who is either from a, 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 a stream of Christianity that tends to be on the more liberal end, or the, what I've been calling in class the more progressive end of Christianity, or if you talk to somebody who's uh, maybe Jewish, um, they will point to this one particular passage in Exodus chapter 21. And this is looked upon as being somewhat of a biblical foundation for abortion. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time just making you aware of what this case is. So Exodus chapter 21, if you'd like to turn there, we can look at the context. I've got the slide there with the, with the actual verses that we're going to focus on for a few minutes here. Now, the book of Exodus is a combination of both history and law. It, it blends both of those genres of literature together. The first part of Exodus is the whole Moses epic. Being in Egypt, the plagues, leaving Egypt, but then they get out into the land. In Exodus chapter 20 is the very famous passage of God giving them the Ten Commandments, is what we call them. Now in chapter 21, there's some additional instructions, and this is you know, um, goes on for a couple of chapters of additional instructions of how the people ought to conduct themselves, that they are going to be a people who will be a light to the other nations around them. And those of you who have been uh, heard my teaching before, you know that my thought is that the whole laws, all the laws can be summed up in one of two ways. They're either telling you how to love God or how to love your neighbor. So when you read anything in the law, you always want to ask yourself, is this a law telling me how to love God or is this a law telling me how to love my neighbor? Because all the laws are under one of those two umbrellas. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. So, um, you, so all of this meticulous detail that we get is really just a way or an expression. And in that cultural context, this is what it looks like to love God. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. So... In this context, then, we have a series of, of instructions about um, how we are to conduct ourselves with one another, how God's people were to conduct themselves toward one another, and especially, and in particular, if personal injuries happened, and if there was bodily injury to another person. And so in that larger conversation, then, we have these verses about injuring a pregnant woman. Okay, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, now many other translations um, translated as if she has a miscarriage, um, but there is no serious injury and the implied object of that is to the mother, but it doesn't specifically say to the mother. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demand in the courts, the court allows. But if there is serious injury, and then there's an alternate translation from the Septuagint that we'll get to in a minute, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, the question is, is what does it mean when it says there is, or who is in view when it says if there is serious injury? Again, it doesn't clarify. Is that the mother or is that the child? Okay. So people, and um, I did quite a lot of reading on this because I was trying to understand different viewpoints of how this verse is looked at. And there is um, a tradition uh, among 
modern Jews that th what this is talking about is injury to the mother and that, that this is part of the case that they will make that the mother's life is more weighty or more valuable than the unborn's life. And you can correct me on anything I get wrong You're here. Right on the button. Okay. <laughs> I've been trying to be very careful in all my research. So, yeah, just feel free to jump in if I mess anything up. And um, there, the, what you have to understand in Judaism is it's not like some big homologous structure of like the official Jewish position is this. It's more like, well, this group of rabbis say this. And then there's this other group of rabbis that kind of take it this way. And so, um, but it seems from what I understand, the majority position is that this is used as, yes, the unborn's life is valuable, but it's not as valuable or more valuable than the mother's life. And so there's this business of, of putting a price tag on if the mother is injured, but what do you do if the child is injured? And it's a little bit unclear in the text as to who the injury has to be to in order to exact that amount. And if somebody dies, there is the um, view number one, is monetary compensation is exacted from someone who causes a woman to give birth prematurely. And this law is called in Latin the lex talonius, which is the life for life principle. And in this view, it's only applied if the mother is harmed. If the mother is who is in view in, in this passage, then, and she uh, is harmed, then it's life for life. But killing a fetus is not a capital crime. Killing the mother is a capital crime. Um, and so some Christians who are in the more progressive or what I would call progressive evangelical or liberal stream of Christianity, they also use this same passage to conclude that the fetus is not to be thought of as fully human or as of equal value as the woman. So this is a biblical foundation for their point of view. So if you watch any debates on YouTube um, between two Christians and you have one that's a progressive and one that's a more historical, making the historical case, um, this is going to be how they're going to look at that passage. From what I understand, and I am not an expert in Hebrew. I've had Hebrew, but I got bees. <laughs> let's just be clear. <laughs> and, you know, let's be clear about my Hebrew skills. Uh, I, I am not a rabbi, and I don't, I don't play one on TV. But from this is that question that you're raising is a very critical question to how this passage is interpreted, and it's highly debated. The question is, is what does this word mean back here of prematurely? Because this translation says it gives birth prematurely. That could be a live birth. If, if, the, if the woman gets injured and the baby's only 20 weeks and she gives a, a live birth versus a miscarriage, that implies that the, the child has died. Those are two kind of different scenarios. And then it's, it's like, well, if the child is dead, then why is only a fine have to be paid? Do you see the problem? And, but if the mother dies, then it's life for life, tooth for tooth. The question here is, who is the serious injury to? And that's why I have to the mother in brackets, because it is not clear in the text who's receiving the serious injury. And this word is also unclear as to whether it is a premature birth or a miscarriage. Survival would be a different question altogether, but that would be very injurious if you had a 20-week-old that was born alive. They would have no way of sustaining that life. You know, it's only through modern medical technology that, that we can do anything. But you would basically, in that context, whether it was premature birth or miscarriage, it was a death <coughs> sentence for that child because they, they might not have been able to be sustained outside. I mean, things were just so different then. Okay, so now the second view is more of the historical Christian view. And we've said this before, but it probably bears repeating that the early church, the Bible of the early church was the Septuagint. And that's what this abbreviation is, is this LL, 
XX. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that was the Bible of, of Jesus and the apostles and the early church. That was what was circulated. They didn't start using the Hebrew, uh, going back to the Hebrew until the medieval period. So the, the, this translation matters for us as Christians. And the historic Christian position has been this word form, and we're going to go back to our slide here. But if there is serious injury, and in the Septuagint, the way that the translators understood what the Moses was meaning there was if there was a form, if there was a form of the baby, if the baby had a form, that you are to have life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that kind of changes the, a little bit of the, the meaning there. If it comes out prematurely and there's a form, then it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It was that law would be enacted of life for life. So in the Christian tradition, they consistently interpret this passage as meaning that feticide is murder and is consequently a capital crime under Mosaic law. That has been the historic Christian position. What's interesting about this is that there's also, I read a couple of articles by some Jewish rabbis that also made the point that there is an Alexandrian tradition or an Egyptian tradition in Judaism. And they also take the verse this way. Um, Philo is their big, um, is the Alexandrian Jewish scholar. He was a contemporary of Jesus and Paul, and he was in Egypt, in Alexandria, northern Egypt. And he also takes the Exodus passage this way. But the Alexandrian tradition in Judaism is not the majority position. Is that accurate? Because the Alexandrian tradition came to be so closely connected to Christianity that there's some, a little bit of, distrust there between the Jews and the Christians. Would you say that's fair? Okay. So that's my best understanding of this passage, and that's not to be exhaustively complete on this topic. I just want you to have a general awareness that this might come up. Now, what I'm going to call the traditional position is I'm going by the traditional Christian position historically for our situation. And so abortion, quote unquote, on demand, and I'm borrowing that phraseology from our culture because that is how it is looked upon currently in our culture is abortion on demand. That is the law of what's allowed and is not consistent with a Christian position of preserving uh, the image of God. Now, I think that most of the Jewish writings that I read would say the same. Uh, there was an overarching value of life. They just have these somewhat more nuanced positions in certain cases. Would you say that's true? Yeah. And this is part of a key part of the strategy that many people who work in preg- the pregnancy resource clinics use is they offer free ultrasounds to women who are considering an abortion. And there's even like a mobile version of this now. There's a whole ministry called Save, Save the Storks. And they have like these mobile vans with free ultrasound equipment in it. And they do like sidewalk counseling and they will give women a free ultrasound so that they can see the baby. And that does impact some of them to change their mind when they see that form of what's there. And so this is part of the conversation that we're in as transformational agents in our culture. Right, because there's this issue in our culture that we're saying we don't see this as being consistent with our position of valuing life. Now, it's a little more awkward for us because we're in our own culture, right? We have our own smell. Remember that conversation a few weeks ago? It's easier to smell other people's smell. It was easier to, to talk about Cambodia and, ooh, child trafficking, that's wrong, right? And we Christians are coming in there and and I saw another news story this week about how the things are just now like starting to really exponentially change in Cambodia around child trafficking because of all the Christians and the good work that they've done there. And that is all rooted and founded in the image of God concept. And 
But here in our own culture, it's a little more awkward because we have this conversation in our heads like, well, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental and I don't want to be too political. But this is why having a discussion about a distinctly Christian culture and the image of God is important. It's something that goes beyond our politics. Then this issue affects all of us differently, whether we're married or unmarried, teenage mothers, young mothers. It's, you know, things happen. Choices are made. But then the question is, is, you know, how are we going to live this out? How are we going to redeem this moment? I love how Marianne talked about that in the video, the interview I did with her, is just to keep the long term in mind, you know, that God's in the business of redeeming the situation. That's not the final answer just because that was maybe not the best circumstance or or the timing or, you know, nobody could have had less money than Marianne. I mean, there was no provision there. But Stephen was here at church last week, and, uh, you know, that's, I'm sure he's very glad that his, his mother, you know, hung around. They're very close, as she said. So, you know, God has a way of redeeming these things. And the, the, the traditional Christian position has been that of trying to choose life whenever possible. And because we believe that this fetus will become a full-fledged human being. And that that is what is there and available. And that there must be a very compelling reason to allow abortion. And there's really like the two biggest questions around this is what if there's a direct threat to the life of the mother by carrying the fetus to term? And secondly, what if the fetus has a lethal fetal defect? Mm -hmm. And these are two very important ethical questions. Now, in my story, um, I, before um, Emily was born, I was very sick. I think my mother probably had me on a lot of prayer chains. <laughs> I don't know. There were a lot of people praying for me because I was really sick. And um, the, the doctor, I was going to the doctors like three times a week for um, blood pressure tra- checks and stress checks to make sure the baby was still alive and moving and and um, I, that was probably like the last four or five months of the pregnancy. I mean, it was a long time. I was really sick. And then I remember going to the, to the doctor one day and I says, well, we're going to do some tests and, and we're going to see uh, if the baby has any birth defects. And, and my husband and I said no to those tests. And the, boy, that was a bunch of pressure. I had to sign a special paper saying I'm refusing these tests. He really tried to talk me out of it. And I, we just gently tried to explain, like, the results of those tests don't matter. Whatever happens is, is going to be already there, and it's going to be what it is. And, um, and I was already in it. And, you know, even though that for me that was a, somewhat of a life-threatening situation that I was enduring at that time, there was never a thought in my mind like, hey, I'm going to terminate this pregnancy because, you know, I, I was just trusting the Lord and hoping for the best, you know, and going to the doctor and having people pray for me and doing everything I could. And I'm glad to be here. I'm glad Emily's here. I'm glad the Lord was in all of that. But that was a hard situation. And that's what I mean. These are very practical questions that you're going to be in with your oikos. These are, these are not some esoteric distant theological questions. These are things all of a sudden it slams into your life and you're like, whoa, I was not expecting this, you know? And, but these are two of the more common questions that we have to wrestle through because in some cases, you know, the life of the mother is more deeply uh, threatened by the child than in the situation I was in. And so that's why I kind of have this bullet point down here is that every situation has its own nuances and it's, and it's best, ideally, you know, you want to discuss that with some competent uh, pastoral counseling and some ethicists. There are actually professional ethicists that are employed by hospitals. Most people don't know this. That are often they'll have a Jewish ethicist, a Catholic eth- ethicist, and a Protestant ethicist mm-hmm. that you can ask to talk to and consult with. And these are people that usually have PhDs in ethics and have some kind of religious persuasion that inform their choices, and they will sit down with you and help you think these things through. This also is is true of end-of-life issues. Um, They will help you. 
And so if you go to some of the larger hospitals, there are resources that are available for, for people to help talk through these things because we don't want to get in a position of the opposite error. I think the error of our culture is this whole on-demand mindset. But we don't want to be in the opposite error of like we're going to be so legalistic about this that we condemn people um, for making very difficult choices. And, you know, there's, there, we have to have some balance of like, yeah, we value life and yeah, we want to help come alongside you in some very difficult circumstances and God can redeem this and let's trust the Lord and let's pray. But sometimes there's things that are just intractably difficult and we need some help to think those through and having some, some people that have really like spent their lives thinking through very thorny ethical questions can be a very valuable resource. And I do want to point you to uh, my friend, Dr. Scott Ray's book, Moral Choices, which I think is the best Protestant, very accessible work on a variety of moral and ethical issues that we face in our culture, capital punishment, pro-life issues, medical technologies, end-of-life issues. Uh, Dr. Ray has done a very fine job. This, his book just came out, and I think it's now in the third edition. Yeah, it's down there. Dr. Ray is my friend, but he's also um, my old professor from Talbot. Um, very solid biblically, but he's on a couple of these boards for ethicists for hospitals. So that's how I know this to be a fact. And that's why we need to talk about these things as Christians, because we don't want the loudest voice in someone's life to just be the government or to just be our media or just to just be the culture. Christians also ought to be a voice. And so when you're in your conversation with your 8 to 15, it's more likely somebody's going to turn to you right? As a friend. It's you need to be sort of equipped and thinking about these things ahead of time that when your grandchild or your child or your friend in women's Bible study or, or your men's group says, hey, I'm in this issue, I'm in this situation. So that's why we're just kind of talking about these things because they're more likely to go to you, you know, and that's going to carry more weight for them than what the government might say, sometimes even more than what their doctor might say. But if you have some things that you can kind of help them begin to talk about it, listen, think it through. The question that's tied to is, what does love look like in a particular situation? Because we can have, like I can have cognitively like, okay, here's where I want the conversation to go. Or like, here's what I think is right. But the question is, is when that person's in their messy state, like, what does love begin to look like for them? And I think we, we often make this mistake um, in our culture and in the church that we haven't reflected deeply on what love looks like. We think that love looks like endorsement. That love looks like, hey, that's cool. I have no judgments about anybody or anything. And that's what love is supposed to look like. Well, sometimes, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird, but for me, a lot of times, love looks like a lot of hard conversations. Mm -hmm. right. Right. It, it looks like a lot of, of, you know, well, have you ever considered that maybe there might be another possibility here? Have you ever thought about it from a different point of view? Yeah. You know, and this is the, the messy part of, being in our oikos. That's why we have this class, is because we want to think about these things ahead of time. And loving people sounds beautiful. And I'm all for love. Like, I want to be a stand for love. I wake up every day. The two things I'm about in my life is I want to be a stand for love and freedom. That's, that's what I'm up to in my life. But I don't always know what that's supposed oh, to yeah. look like. And then I have to get in a conversation with the Lord of, Lord, I'm out of ideas here. I need some supernatural ideas from you of what love is supposed to look like for this person. What is that? Is that coming alongside them? Is that giving them like some direct truth verbally? Is that inviting them to make a change in their life? Is that even having a different boundary with them? Love can look a lot of different ways. Are you with me? Like, and does anyone else find loving thing people complicated? Because people are complicated and their sins are complicated, right? Their sins are so complicated. And so we can't say like, 
Well, what you need to do is give them the unvarnished truth. Well, I don't know if I'm always up for the unvarnished truth. Like it's sort of like, and they might not be today, but we might need to help them inch to that, you know? It's like if I ask my my husband, like, does this... Does this dress make me look fat? He's like, I don't know if I want to answer that question. (laughs) You know, that's, I don't know if you want the unvarnished truth about that, right? That's, that's, that's tough. I always ask people like, are you asking for my opinion or are you just, or, or are you just looking for me to listen or like, what is it that you're wanting? And clarify that with them. Because when they're trying to dump something on you, it's always an invitation to something. And I have to figure out what is this an invitation to? Because if it's an invitation to my approval, we're probably not going to get to that. But if it's an invitation to my opinion about, okay, you're in a mess. Would you like some ideas about how to clean up this mess? That's a different conversation. But I always try to ask the person, like, what are you, what are you hoping for in this conversation? What do you, what do you need? in this it's it's easy when it's other people but then when it's you or it's you're sitting across from somebody in that conversation you got to know how you're going to navigate that and how you're going to show up in love and listening and thinking about all right where are we going with this what am i intending to cause in this conversation where do we want to end up or where how am i going to walk with this person through this. And then sometimes people make choices that are just hard. They just make choices that are hard and then you're stuck in the the messiness of how do I walk with them now? Like what's the redemption for this person now? And all of that requires a very close relationship with the Lord as you talk to him and you ask him, what do you have for this person? What do you want me to say to this person? That doesn't always have to come from us. Do you know that? Like that doesn't, you don't have to figure that out. That's the Lord's gift to you. As you learn how to hear from the Lord, you can ask him, what, what do you want me to say? You don't have to be really smart and have magic words. That's the Holy Spirit's business. But to, to think about these things, and just be aware of them. All right, I'm going to try to get a little farther down the road here. So I want to talk now about making the case for the unborn. And this is... Um, just kind of some highlights of how to, when you're in a conversation with somebody who maybe is taking a different position than you, I'm, I'm not, this is not an invitation to be a jerk, okay? And this is not an invitation to like get into an argument, but just how do we have some ideas, some statements, some thoughts of how to talk about these things within a, a wider culture that takes a, an abortion on demand kind of point of view. So um, when you get into these conversations, there's like an unending number of what I call distractions. Like there are so many facets to this conversation about abortion. You know, you're going to have people talk to you about the law, Planned Parenthood, and how, you know, whatever their position is about that, birth control, rape, incest, choice, privacy. These are all possible topics that, come around this conversation. But my instruction to you is ignore all of that. Ignore, (coughs) ignore, 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 ignore all of these things. These are all invitations to talk about things that are not the primary issue. The primary issue, oh yeah, and people will attack your character, they'll call you stupid, they'll call you backward, you know, you know, you're just some backwater Christian. You don't really know what you're talking about. You're not very educated. Ignore all of these things because there is really only one question that, that matters, and that is, is the unborn a human? That is the only question that you really need to talk about because I don't know about you, but I'm not an attorney. I'm not an expert on the law. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an expert on, on the science. But there's one question that we have to be very clear on, is, is the unborn a human? Depending on what your answer to that is, a whole lot of things follow. And so you have to have clarity about that question, is, is the unborn a human? So if we were to make the case from scripture, 
this is how I would do it. And it's a little differently than how you might have heard it before. Uh, premise one is that all humans have value because they bear the image of their creator. This is the theme that we've been talking about all fall, is that every human has dignity, value, and worth, even the unborn. Premise two is that because humans bear the image of God, shedding innocent blood is wrong. We talked about that a while ago from Genesis chapter 9. Um, premise three is that fetuses are human beings. The conclusion is that abortion is scripturally forbidden because it's a human being. It's a very simple argument from scripture. Now, and if you notice, I don't use Psalm 139. That's the normal way, or the not normal, but like the more popular way of making the case. But um, I do it more of an image of God approach, that human beings bear the image of God. The unborn is a human being. Therefore, he has the image of God, and so should not be killed. Psalm 139 words. Um, fearfully and wonderfully made and knit together in my mother's womb. It's a very poetic um, depiction of the fetus in the womb. The reason I don't use that is because some Christians will say, well, that's just poetry. That's not, that's not a real um, narrative. And they put more weight on narratives in scripture than poetry. This is a very poetic, non-literal, figurative description. And so I prefer to make a case based on the image of God, because that's a very clear, it's universally accepted in the church um, uh, idea, a very uh, strong historical foundation. But what if we're talking to somebody who doesn't regard the Bible? And how can we make the case? Well, this is how I would make the case, is that premise one is wrong to intentionally kill a defenseless human being. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Conclusion abortion is wrong. So I haven't used scripture in this, and you can just ask somebody, well, do you think it would be wrong to kill a defenseless human being? Do you think it would be wrong to, but if it's wrong, it would be wrong to kill a two-year-old. This is the, the very common analogy is you say, what if the baby had just been born five minutes ago? Could I kill it? And we're going to talk more about the location and all of those arguments next week from philosophy. But this is a very simple, straightforward case without scripture. You can buy it or not buy it, but this is, this is um, what I found to be the, the most uh, easy and economical way of doing it. So what's our, main, what's our main question? Is the unborn a human? Is the unborn a human? Okay. So we're going to play a video clip now from those uh, famous theologians on The View. Joy Behar and Whoopi Goldberg, those great uh, cultural spokespeople. And uh, they're going to educate us about the issue of abortion. And so what I want you to listen for in the conversation, it's about a five-minute clip, is I want you to listen for what question is missing from this conversation and what are all the many topics that come up in the conversation. All right, go. President Obama addressed the abortion issue in his commencement speech at University of Notre Dame this weekend, and that drew boycotts and protests of his pro-choice stance, and yeah. some of them weren't quiet about it, okay? The protesters, they made a little noise. Check it out. You see how he's so cool, the guy, yeah. you know? And then after the guy, this, this one was yelling, because it was a very small minority that was actually protesting. Right, the, the majority group. of people at right. Notre Dame itself were not, were not protesting at all. They wanted him there, and the president gave an eloquent speech. Beautiful. Because, you know, he pointed out to people watching that President Obama is a very compassionate person, that he's not out for you to get an abortion. Nobody wants you to get an abortion, but he is, the rule of the land is pro-choice right now. And, and also he put, the guy pointed out, and the priest, he was a priest, that, you know, there are things like capital punishment. They're not protesting those particular murders or torturing people. So it's, a, it's not, Catholicism is not a one-note samba. 
It's a lot of issues, and this yeah. is just one note. My, my actually, this, the sermon this weekend even at my church was about how people tend to pick and choose the thing that they want to extract yeah. from the Bible and then um, protest, whereas though, you know, there are many, like you said, many facets of mm -hmm. um, following that Christian doctrine. I think, you know, the main problem that they had was with his stance on, you know, he was one of the loudest people um, not supporting the Infant Born Alive Protection Act. So that was something that was really riling up that one group and the partial that. birth abortion. He, no, he, he actually voted present. Cut. He voted present. I don't know yeah. how you vote present yeah. on that. You're either, it's a very clear-cut issue there. I mean, let's really be truthful. We're not going to resolve this issue. Yeah, people have very, very strong feelings about it. You know, some people feel, well, if you're against, truly against all murder, then you have to go back and protest all the presidents who have sent people to war. Right. If you're going to protest, you know, you really have to make a decision about where you stand. It's like, for me, it's like gay marriage. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe in gay marriage, do not marry a gay person. <laughs> bugs me about the movement, the though. They call it pro-life and then pro-choice. They yeah. should really call it pro-choice and anti-choice, because that is what it's really about. That's what it's about. about. No, the choice for life is still, I mean, if you are no, no, the choice is against, interestingly, against choice. Interestingly enough, That's what the for choice the first is. time, for the first time in, I don't know if ever, the, there was a recent Gallup poll that has 51% of people being pro-life. So this is actually the first time that... You know, the, it's, it's interesting with that 51%. Pro I'm pro-life also. It's yeah. very much an, an insult to me, as a person who values life, to say that I'm not pro-life. Yeah. Who are these I am people also pro -life. deciding that I'm not pro-life? But I thought it was interesting with that with that Gallup poll. Well, call yourself because something now different then. They were saying no, they a should lot. call themselves what it is, which is anti-choice. Mm. Yes. No, but I was saying anti-choice. They were saying that a lot of younger people now are saying that they're pro-life and they don't know if it's if it has anything to do with now. You know, before, you know, 30 years ago, you weren't able to get a picture of the, the baby in utero. Now you're getting pictures of this baby and what it actually looks I like. Know, when you I, know, I, look, when I, I have my to, ultrasound at 16 weeks, you see, I mean, you are able to see listen, baby so much that when you can't it be a way afford to, the child, yeah. when you cannot afford to have the child or you don't have the resources looking at that baby doesn't make it any easier to make their choice I am pro-life because I think people who can raise it should raise it now I don't say listen maybe the octomom shouldn't have had 43 kids okay but She's, I do but, say maybe but, we get it. But see, no, no, maybe we got her. That is her choice. And if it's she is choosing, if she is choosing to have fifty-five babies, you can't suddenly say, "Oh, well, maybe you shouldn't she's do it." She's choosing to have fifty-five babies, and now I got to pay for all of those fifty-five babies. That's that's, that's, that's what, my goal. No, no, well, maybe we got to do. But something. here's the situation: she's got the money I to take care of those way. I feel the same way. If you can't afford to have your kid, I don't want you having one, and I want you to have the ability to say the truth. I really can't do this right now. What about now? the people who do it based on convenience? Like, let's, because we, I, I understand, I hang on, let me finish, let me finish. Many people Wait a minute, I, have, I hear stories all the time they're, of women who are working, they don't want yes, to have their stories, family. But we hear what about stories, those people? And what about those situations? They are boneheads. <laughs> you know, well, they are but not. Okay. But the one wait, thing wait, I they don't, well, let me finish. Okay. They are not the majority. The majority of people who are having these abortions are women who go through hell to make that decision. I am not saying that's an easy decision, and, and, but I no, think there are but there convenience are, but there based abortions everywhere. as well. There, there are boneheads bone everywhere. There's, there's, there, there are teenage girls out here. Mm -hmm. There are teenage girls out here who, I have to speak to that because I was one of them, who it, it wasn't a thing of where I didn't think of, oh, I can't feed this baby. I don't have you no money. Know. Did anybody I, I teach you? I was a teenager. It was just what like, it, who, who, who helped you? Where did you what? go to get help to talk about what had happened? I went to Planned Parenthood, and they actually were encouraging me to have the abortion. Even when I had second thoughts, How old they, I was 17. And, and I, I said I got second thoughts, but they were trying to rush me in there for, to have I, the abortion. I, I ended up to not say, going, Sherry, but I don't know who, who you went to, but I'll I tell you. This no, 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 I'm saying I don't. On this I don't, I don't, I don't I, I mean, I'm saying I was a teenager. I wasn't thinking about all the other stuff. No, I was thinking I'm pregnant. I want this baby. That's good. We get the idea. They're upset. Okay, so what's the one question nobody ever asked? Is the baby human? I mean, I got like, I don't know, 15 different topics that, okay. So uh, this will be my little plug for a logic class again. Um, that's, you know, a fallacy 
of, um, just uh, escaped me, but that's a fallacy. Um, anyways, they, they, they talked about the law, they talked about theology, they talked about a new proposed law, they talked about their feelings, the equivocation, the equivocation fallacy. That's what it is, is war, uh, capital punishment, they even had something about gay marriage in there, I didn't know how we arrived at that. We had a lot of conversation about, well, what do we call this, you know? Choice, anti-choice, pro-life, you know, it was a big conversation about the nomenclature. Uh, then we got the Gallup poll. That's another fallacy of yeah. the uh, ma majority rules, that that's how we find truth. Well, let's throw that up there. Some more feelings. I'm insulted. Um, then we have demographics. That's just another fallacy. Um, they can't afford it. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it's a person. And there was... It, it, None of this has anything to do with the key question is, is this a human person? And so that's what I'm saying. When you're in this conversation, there's all of these possible rabbit trails you can go down. Don't go down them. This is my advice. Focus on one question and one question only is, is this a human person? Which is a, which is a complicated ethical Discussion, which we could talk about at some point, is how is going to war different than murder? And how is, you know, is that the same thing? Like, how should we have views about capital punishment and abortion? That always comes up. And that's an interesting ethical situation in, in the history of Christianity. But, you know, we had the, the, the mother's rights. Do you remember at the front of the class, I said liberals tend to focus more on the mother's rights, conservatives tend to focus more on the child's rights. As a Christian, we want to try to help provide holistic solutions to this. And we had a conversation about welfare and um, more emotional issues about going through hell and, and so in Planned Parenthood. I mean, this is, this is such a thorny issue. But the thing that we have to be clear on as Christians is this is all, a lot of this is political stuff. But the thing we need to be clear on is, is this a human person? That's the question that really matters when you're talking to somebody over coffee, okay? Is if this is a human person, let me come beside you and try to help you figure out some solutions so we can value both of you. Just really quickly here is the second move in the conversation is to first, the first move was just focus on one question. The second is to use science to support your argument for the unborn as a human person, and they touched on a couple of those issues, is um, we talk in many ways about the unborn being a human person. I mean, the result of conception is a separate person with its own DNA code from the beginning. They have their own DNA that's separate from the mother and separate from the father. And if you have that DNA code, that's not a, question, that's not a religious statement. It's just purely a scientific statement. It's what do you do with that? Doesn't that seem to indicate to you that this is a human person? Right. We encourage women to abstain from alcohol during pregnancy because it affects the baby. <laughs> it seems to be its own person, and we don't want to affect that person. We tell women not to take drugs. We tell women to you know, get some exercise and, and that sort of thing. That'll help the baby. That seems to be we're taking care of it as if it is a human person. Um, we perform surgery now while baby is still in utero to help. And we, we engage in pain management for the baby. That seems to indicate that it's a human person if we have to engage in pain management for the fetus. Um, these are not religious arguments. I would just ask the person, doesn't that sound like we're treating that as a human person? And by the time most women discover they are pregnant, they're frequently at least six, four to six weeks along. And by that point, the fetus has its own heartbeat and brain activity. These all seem to me to be scientific indicators that this is a human person, a separate human person with its own DNA. Now, it is dependent on the mother for its life. And that's a a question we'll talk more about next week. Yeah, Laura. Um, I just want to really quickly, is the unborn human, I just want to affirm that because that was the hardest thing for me to reconcile. Um, some of you were here, I shared my testimony there, so it shouldn't be surprised for a lot of you. I had an abortion, but my husband and I, at the time, was my first husband, um, just a 
decided it wasn't the right time, and it, it wasn't even a person in my worldview at the time. Um, my father took me to have an abortion, helped me pay for it. It was just a fetus, honestly. It, I had zero inkling that it was a human being, and no one had even asked me that question or suggested that it was a human being, because I was living in the world, and it was Roe v. the whole thing, right? When I became a Christian, though, it was very, my world changed at that point for me. That's when it changed. Once Christ came in my life, I had to go through a healing process. And it was really hard to reconcile to finally admit that this was a human being that I had murdered. It was just very hard. I, I, I feel now even nervous talking about it because it's so personal. But I remember there was a gal at APU, and I was very new Christian, um, maybe a year, year and a half, I was wrestling with this. and. I kept asking her, but how do we know it's a human? Because I just didn't want to admit it. And finally, she just said to me, I think you know the answer to that. Changed my whole life. So someone who came alongside and helped me reconcile that question is a, a human being. That's so good because, yeah, because that just goes to exactly the point that I'm making is that the cultural voice is sometimes for some people the strongest voice in their life. Or even all you hear. Yeah, it's all you hear. Yeah, it's all you know. And 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 when you're talking, when you in this room are talking to someone, you might be that alternative voice to ask the very penetrating question: Have you ever considered that this is a human person? You know, what are your thoughts about what this is and what you're doing? And just help them maybe reflect more deeply. But you might have to be involved in that person's life. You might have to come alongside them and help point them to some resources. And, you know, that it, that's all part of the love package for that person. We don't want to be just merely a philosophy. This is all to get us to love our 8 to 15. Right? Are you with me? Because this is not a class on, on debating. We have to talk about difficult issues, but the big picture is how am I going to love people? How, what is that going to begin to look like? So I'm going to close because we're over time. If you want to come give me your comments afterwards, you can. Father, we thank you for how you have created us and how you have made us a little lower than the angels. And that we are the crown of your creation here on earth. Lord, sometimes we don't always act in ways that are consistent with valuing that creation. Sometimes we use our words to cut down and criticize people who have been created in your image, and we don't honor them, and we repent of that. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be courageous and loving, and to stand for life as we explore these questions. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.